In these uncertain times of high inflation, high interest rates, changing consumer patterns, there are some things that seem a little more certain, like our shift to renewables and our need for investment in infrastructure as the climate changes, populations grow, consumer behavior is transformed. So is a long-term investment in infrastructure the way to go? That's this week. The Morning Call from NAB with Phil Dobby. The Weekend Edition. Long-term infrastructure investments sounds a bit boring doesn't it to many people perhaps but it's safe isn't it i mean we'll always need infrastructure so there'll always be demand and some sort of payback the question is over time is the return better than a more volatile path chosen through hit and miss investments in tech and other high growth stocks well maple brown abbott have chosen the steady road or the steady rail, or the steady electrical distribution, wherever infrastructure is needed. And their focus is on ESG, which makes sense. I mean, if you're going to invest in energy, the growth surely is in renewables. Well, Georgia Hall is an ESG analyst at Maple Brown Abbott. Prior to that, she was a manager for ESG and corporate responsibility at Combank. She's with us on the weekend edition today, and the usual caveat to keep the compliance people happy, we'll be hearing her views, not those of NAB. She doesn't work for NAB, so why would they be? Uh, but this podcast is not an endorsement of anything she says. You get what I mean. Uh, so, Georgia, uh, then now that's out of the way, uh, your focus is on investments in long-term infrastructure plays. So give us an idea of the types of companies that that includes. Uh, well, thank you for having me. So, um In terms of the types of infrastructure companies that we look for, we're really looking for core infrastructure. So we're talking about companies that provide essential services to society. So water utilities, communications infrastructure, so the companies that own the the, um, cell towers, renewable energy developers, roads and airports, electric utilities and so on. Um, In particular, we look for companies that have high barriers to entry and sort of monopolistic characteristics. So um, we specifically target those companies that have lower volatility relative to global equities, inflation protection characteristics and some level of income stability. Um, So environmental, social and governance factors, as you mentioned, the ESG factors are also intrinsic to our investment process. And we use these factors to help minimize risk within the portfolio, but at the same time to help find, um, identify investment opportunities. So you gave all the reasons about minimizing risk just there. I mean, these are big companies. These are essential companies. They're large companies. So, you know, I mean, I know it doesn't always apply that, that argument that they're too big to fail. But it's, I mean, it seems like this is a very safe road. These are things that are needed. These are things often that there'll be government money put into it as well to support it, I should imagine. Given it's so safe, why isn't everybody investing in this? Well, I'm sure the compliance people on your end might have issue with us referring to this as a safe investment. Because mm. obviously there's no such thing as a safe investment. <laughs> there is a picked But up. Uh, the long-dated nature of these um, companies is really the beauty of, of infrastructure. These companies have large capex spending plans. They are heavily regulated. Um, they, as I mentioned, have high barriers to entry. Um, but on that, you know, the, the longer, longer-dated aspect of these companies means that they're really well positioned to benefit from the Themes that really are set to define generations to come. Mm. Um, so so tell, that could be things like. Tell us, yes, tell us what those mega themes are. Um, well, I think one of them 
biggest mega themes at the moment and for, for, for years to come is certainly the energy transition, uh, moving away from fossil fuel sources of energy to lower carbon renewables, for instance, um, decarbonization, digitization. So that's where cell, t- cell phone towers come in, for instance, mobility and transport, and also things like urbanization. Uh, which have has bearings over things like the catchment areas that water utilities serve. Mm. So these are huge yeah. themes that these companies really have to adapt and and prepare for um, to invest now um, to develop the right services for society to support these themes. You're right that there's no such thing as a safe investment, but the criteria you use, would you have, for example, invested in the you know the Cost City Tunnel, which was an example of a you know, you would have thought too big to fail project in Sydney that really did fail. Uh, a lot of money was lost, even though it was a, you know, monopoly infrastructure providing access from the eastern suburbs, you know, the wealthy eastern suburbs into uh, into the centre of town. I mean, how could it fail? Uh, but it did. Yeah, no, it's, it's a good it's a good point. And I think um, this is a challenge with some of these these projects that um do run out for many years and there are some you know concerns around things like mushrooming costs associated with them um, but this is a key part of our investment process when we are analyzing a company we look at these projects and we we use sort of project finance type models um, to to really crunch the numbers over a 10 year plus um, basis or horizon there's never any safe investment but certainly the infrastructure space when we're really focusing on those core characteristics of infrastructure that are a attractive um, for, you know, uh, clients. Um, th- that's really the way that we have geared the investment process is to, to focus on that and not sort of diverge into, you know, infrastructure-like assets that that could deviate from some of the um, monopolistic type characteristics or right. inflation protection, etc. So what are the boundaries then? So, for example, if we looked at an energy company, if there's an energy company that had its own infrastructure, but it was largely a retail play selling to consumers – would you consider them as part of your 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 portfolio, or are you looking for just pure play infrastructure providers? Yeah, so um, the retailers, for instance, and all also things like telcos, these are companies that fall outside of our core definition. Um, it's not to say that there aren't investment opportunities there. We just don't see them as core having exhibiting the core attributes of infrastructure. So I think telcos is quite a nice example because they're not monopolistic and they don't have that level of inflation protection that we're looking for. But we do invest in the cell phone towers themselves. So these are the physical towers that lease out to the telcos. And that's where these types of companies can tap into the digitization um, thematic, for instance, um, so companies like Celnex and Crown Castle, American Towers, these are um, companies that are in our investable universe. And this is a global play, obviously. There's just not enough of those projects, I can imagine, within Australia to to invest in. So what's, what's your mix? And when you start to look overseas, doesn't that get a bit more problematic? Because it's, it's you know, particularly if it's in a foreign language, uh, trying to understand the nuances and the you know the the detail about whether a, pro- a project's going to be a success or not is going to get harder isn't it because just because of linguistic differences definitely and the investable universe is is always changing and and we see this for things through um asset rotation acquisitions the repurposing of assets for instance um and the strategy which was started around 10 years ago um at the time the investable universe was quite different to where it is today 
Um, you know, there are a lot more opportunities that we saw in the Australian market, but through things like private takeovers, for instance, some of the opportunities in, in Australia have, have, have dried up, so to speak. But that's not to say that we, the investable universe is, is decreasing. It's actually quite stable, but the opportunities have just changed. Um, and from a geographical perspective, um, you know, a lot of those, those companies for us are, are really in Europe and North America and some in, in sort of Latin America, for instance. We don't have much exposure to emerging markets. Um, there are countries like Brazil and Chile that, that we are invested in. Um, but companies like um, countries like China and India are not um, markets that we invest in primarily because um, there are differences in the way that companies are regulated. Um, things like inflation pass-through characteristics um, just mean that the, the, the infrastructure companies in, in certain emerging market countries don't meet our our core definition of infrastructure. So by nature, we really are predominantly invested in developed markets. And when you talk about investments, are you just buying shares in these companies or are you in some cases making direct investments in, in, in companies that might be unlisted companies? We are um, pure listed infrastructure investors. So um, these are these are uh, listed stocks. Um, but of course, you know, there's, there's a bit, of, there's been a lot of discussion over the years around, um, the, the, the valuation differences between the private or direct infrastructure market versus the listed space. Um, really the, the, the fact of the matter is, is that these are the same assets. They have the same regulators. Um, they have the same attributes. One is privately owned and, and one is listed. And on the listed side, it means that we have more flexibility to, um, move in and out of positions to maximize the potential of the portfolio. Um, and we just have that level of flexibility on the liquidity side that you wouldn't get on the direct side. But you're holding along to some of these stocks for a long time, I can imagine. If you've, if you've done the research, you believe that, uh, you know, a project has a, a lot of upside potential. Uh, or, you know, at least it's not in danger of losing some of that potential you saw at the beginning. Um, then you're going to you're going to stick with it, presumably. Yes. So um, there are some companies that we've had in the portfolio really since around inception. Um, so a good co- example of a company is one called GetLink. Uh, this is the um, a company that um, operates the concession for the Channel Tunnel and the Eurostar um, that runs between uh, the UK and France and other parts of Europe. Um, and that's a stock that we've held in, in a portfolio for quite some time and has been gone through, you know, some incredible changes in the market, things like Brexit, for instance, but mm. has been a, a significant driver of performance for us in the portfolio. Well, yeah, I mean, they're a great example, aren't they? Uh, because they are not running the trains, they own the infrastructure. So the vagaries of the market when they're the ups and downs, perhaps they're less susceptible to that. But also, I mean, uh, Eurostar's got a new competitor that's going to be a new rail company, which is offering services through the Channel Tunnel. It doesn't affect them. It's all just more business for them. But the interesting thing as well is the, the question of additionality, isn't it? Because they are using that tunnel now to uh, provide electricity interconnect between France, where they've got a lot of nuclear energy, and uh, the UK, which is a bit energy poor. Yeah, so this is, um, I think, a really fascinating and brilliant example of, of additionality in, in, in infrastructure. So um, they have built a transmission cable, a bi-directional transmission cable that um, runs between the UK and France and is basically um, able to transfer electricity between UK and France. Um, so as you can imagine, uh, when France has, say, ample nuclear 
uh, capacity on their grid um, and the UK is is um, in need, needing capacity, then they're able to basically trade that electricity. Um, and it, just as much as if there's a significant amount of wind generation on the grid or other sources of electricity, then France can benefit from that. Um, so, you know, the transmission thematic is absolutely huge. And a lot of people forget that if we are to move away from fossil fuels and renewable energy generation, we need the transmission and distribution infrastructure to support it. What's going to connect it all up? And this this cable is a brilliant example of where an infrastructure company has has used its existing infrastructure to tap into that thematic. Well, it's a great synergy, isn't it? And I guess that's part of the secret, isn't it? It's to look at investments where you can see that there's some sort of upside potential, something else uh, that that company could diversify into. Uh, and if it seems logical, then that will perhaps happen. So, yeah, that makes a great deal of sense. So give me another example, then, of the, you, your secret source. Uh, what else are you doing? You've already told us a few things about, for example, choosing monopolistic uh, infrastructure plays. What else do you do, do you look for to make sure that, you know, you're you're on a safer bet? Um, well, if I, if I talk to the ESG side of things, um I think the infrastructure companies are a classic example of companies that really rely on their social license to operate. So, for instance, in a cost of living crisis, that could be through managing customer bills. Um, it could be in a, in a world where we see increasing policy and regulation and, and legal changes on the environmental and climate change side. It could be, you know, reducing their carbon footprint or how do they, how do they account for things like a carbon tax? But also things like demonstrating best practice with corporate governance. Uh, we place a particular emphasis on governance in our process um, because a lot of these infrastructure companies come, come from prior government ownership. And so decisions to invest capital now will have uh, ramifications for decades to come. And without the strong governance pillars in place, you know, a lot of the other pillars can fall down. Um, so really, when we look at companies on the ESG um from the ESG lens, we're looking at them in terms of what's their business model, what's the jurisdiction in which they operate, who are their regulators, what's their customer base like, um, and also what are the the factors that um, make them a strong ESG strategy um, that, to to help minimise some of those risks, say stranded assets, but at the same time are going to drive performance. So whether that's investing capex in the transmission and distribution. Um, infrastructure that we need, um, we desperately need around the world. Um, so what I'm, I suppose what I'm trying to say is that we don't take a sort of pro forma approach. You know, it's not a box ticking process where we look at companies. We really need to look at them um, individually to 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 recognise those factors. Doing your homework is what it's called, isn't it? Really. But what about you mentioned uh, that it was relatively inflation proof, and in that you're not dealing with the consumer. I guess that was your that was your point. But there can be an inflation in costs, can't there? So uh, we had uh, Virginia Christie from the WA Economic Regulation Authority few weeks back on the morning call and she was talking about as we get closer to the 2050 deadline for net zero we're going to find that there's a huge inflation in the costs of equipment and kit and people because everybody is working to the same deadline i mean that must be an element that you must factor in when you're looking at these big infrastructure plays that costs and supply chains are going to be increasingly costly Definitely. Um, and that, that is that is a risk. Um, I think, generally speaking, supply chains have been the overlooked and underappreciated risk um, in, in, in anything, whether that's global pandemic, whether that's the energy transition 
supply chains are absolutely intrinsic to any um, the ways in which companies operate, especially infrastructure companies. Um, so yes, these renewable energy projects do rely on critical minerals. Um, they rely on all the steel infrastructure that is, you know, increasingly um, hard to come by because the demand is so huge, but the the market can't, can't quite keep up keep up with the demand. Um, so yes, these are risks, and, and it's really about sort of delving into the companies that have um, accounted for their supply chain bottlenecks and costs, um, that really have a good understanding of their supply base. And also uh, diversifying their supply base. So they're not heavily exposed to one particular country or region. Um, say, for instance, in, in China, where we know that there are certain laws or policies or regulations out there that um, uh, make the importation of certain goods or products much harder. Um, so really, we want to see these companies having a strong understanding of their supply base, but also um, locking in some of those costs so that they are more able to hedge out um, um, rising costs as as they as they transition more and more towards things like renewables, but that just it is not it, it that comment doesn't just apply to renewables. It also applies to things like infrastructure companies in the transportation space. So for major ro- road projects, as you mentioned earlier, uh, it really flows across um, all, all the sort of uh, components of um, the subsectors. And your clients, I can imagine, because you're sort of like you're minimising risk in an area which has got a long return. So I'm imagining uh, pension funds are going to be finding you particularly attractive. Infrastructure is a great portfolio diversifier um, and it is you know, hugely complementary to other asset classes because of its diversification, depending on where you are in the market cycle. Um, and as you say, more stable and you know, I hate to say it, but probably less sexy. But, you know, that's a good thing. Um, we need these things in our portfolios because um, we need to adapt for different market conditions to drive performance when we need it to and also minimize risk when we need it to. Um, our client base is wonderfully diverse. We have um, clients in the institutional space, so pension plans, superannuation, for instance, or the consultants. Um, and then also we have um, clients in the intermediary space, so private wealth, um, and then also retail, so on the financial advice space. Um, and, and we have distribution partners, um, you know, around the world who, who work with, for us on, on our behalf, um, to various markets. So yes, uh, you know, nice and, nice and diverse, not only in terms of client type, but also geographically. Georgia, uh, long-term infrastructure investments, not boring at all. You've made it very interesting. And, a lot of common sense. So great to have you on the on the weekend edition. We'll catch you again sometime soon. Thanks. Thanks very much. Now, next week, Anne Sherry, uh, she is on the board of NAB, so I better behave. I might even put a fresh shirt on for that one. Uh, Anne's got some interesting things to say about managing a business in a time of change like we are going through right now, understanding changing consumer preferences is part of it, and maybe not all companies have got a handle on that just yet. How can you spot those that know the lay of the land and those that are perhaps a bit slow to change? That's next week. And I am back on Monday for our regular weekday look at the markets as well on The Morning Call. I'm Phil Dobby for NAB. I'll see you then. Thanks for listening. The Weekend Edition 